Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Good evening. My name is Kelly Michael Williams. I'm your host tonight for another broadcast of Black Politics Today. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. And as I do with every show before I get started and get too deep into our discussion, I always pause and thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for just allowing us to host this platform, to have this show, to be able to reach out to those of you who are listening and also our guests who call in each and every week to support and share with us their insight and expertise on what's at stake in global politics and what's at stake for us as African-Americans, what's at stake for us as Americans, what's at stake across this country, uh, as well as across the globe when we deal with international and other issues as well. And uh, this weekend has been, uh, you know, jam-packed with just so much news, so much information, so many things going on and and, and happening uh, on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, as as uh, many of you uh, locally in the, in the DMV, as we call it, uh, know, and those of you across the country who may not know, this past weekend, the state of Virginia found itself in one of those unforeseen and tenable positions of discovering that their newly elected governor, Democrat Nor- Ralph Northam, uh, during his time in as a medical student, uh, either posed as or allowed a picture of two individuals one in blackface and one other in a Ku Klux Klan robe and hood to be placed in his medical school yearbook next to his picture. And some have said that given uh, the timing of this uh, back in that time, that you have to take it into a full context of the fact that the picture was taken, someone took the picture, that um, the school whoever was responsible for the yearbook uh, allowed in the committee that's, you know, a part of this yearbook uh, committee that we all know happens in high school and everything else, approved of this being placed in there. And then the determination of it being placed next to his picture, whether it be him uh, in that blackface or the hood or not be. Um, But something that initially the governor had suggested was him Uh, but then later came back and said it wasn't him, has put him in a very precarious position because now he's lost his credibility in terms of his initial acknowledgement and quasi-apology, and then backtracked and said, well, at one time he put blackface on to do a dance contest and perform Michael Jackson. Now, I don't know about you, but me personally, I don't know how much moonwalking Ralph Northam can be doing Uh, Now, he is much older now, so back in the day, maybe he was able to do that, and maybe he was, you know, the thriller of the night. We don't know. But what we do know is that given the history of Virginia and and understanding exactly the whole 
idea of being in blackface and or in a Ku Klux Klan hood and robe and having that posted in your yearbook. Uh, and I think this was 1980s. This was not the 50s or the 60s. This was 1980. Um, creates a problem for him. Something that he had not talked about or acknowledged before, had not said anything about before. And given Virginia's history, their racial past, and the scab of Charlottesville ever fresh in our minds, the idea of the sitting government posing in blackface or as a KKK member is certainly something that's appalling and unfortunate. And the Democrats are dealing with this right now in the, uh, in the State House of Virginia, but nationally, uh, Democrats have come out and have suggested and demanded his resignation, asked him to step down, asked him to move out the way, and he has been steadfast in saying he's not going to do it. He's not doing anything. He's not moving. He needs time to think about it and figure out exactly what to do. And other things that you have is that tomorrow, after 35 days under the Trump-induced government shutdown, and the discovery of additional Russian interference and connections with the Trump campaign. Tomorrow evening, Donald Trump will speak to the nation for his second State of the Union address, prime off of his induced government shutdown and his subsequent interview uh, where he proclaimed that the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt. And what amazes me about that is that some 40 people have been indicted, uh, of which I think 10 are directly connected to his campaign that he now says are Russian bloggers and people that have nothing to do with him and aren't tied to him at all, uh, meaning that his national security advisor, who he hired, Michael Flynn, his campaign chairman, who he hired, Paul Manafort, his assistant, Rick Gates, who he hired, uh, his advisor, Roger Stone, his foreign affairs advisor, George Papadopoulos, uh, a Republican strategist, Sam Patton. I mean, all these cats have been indicted. Some have been convicted. In fact, all, I believe, have been convicted except for Roger Stone. And all of them are going to do some jail time. But Trump says they have nothing to do with him. And if you look at that and just wonder what's really going on and how much more of this are we going to have to deal with, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see exactly how this State of the Union plays out. Because when we take a look at the policies that this administration has put in place and what they have done from the child separation and deportation to nullifying the Department of Justice agreements to uh, um, defunding various aspects of the uh, ACA to lifting most recently the sanctions on the Russian oligarch who had direct connection to the interference of our 2016 president's election. It's absolutely crazy. And so the question becomes, what exactly can Donald Trump say in his State of the Union? And to discuss that with me tonight is our GOP political strategist, chairman and executive director of the Urban Red. Urban Red's mission is to find conservative candidates to run for local office in more than 25 of our largest urban cities. And my guest tonight is Ralph Chitham. Chitham. I'm gonna get this, you know, Ralph, I'm, I'm gonna try to get this right throughout the, throughout the night. I, 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 and I apologize ahead of time, because you know, I keep going through this. Every time I have you on the show, your last name kills me. It's Chitham's. 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 And I'm, I'm gonna right. get Chitham. Okay, I got it. I got it now, this time, all right? Also joining us tonight is our uh, Democratic political strategist, and principal at uh, Carruthers Consulting Firm, Rebecca Carruthers. She's a political and government relations professional and has worked on projects and political campaigns in nearly every region of the United States. Her contributions and expertise led her to become a lobbyist on tax uh, issues, energy and fuel issues. But also coming back to us again also is uh, Jason Crosby. He's a native from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he has also been a coordinator and organizer with the Interfaith Council for Peace and Justice, uh, as well as a leader with Empower West, a group of white and black pastors with the vision of empowering the western side of Louisville, West Louisville, through education and economic development. Let me welcome all of you to the show tonight. Welcome, everyone, to the show. 
Thank you. Good to be Thank here. Thank you for having me. All right, great. Rebecca, as I always do, ladies first. Ladies first, except for last week when I had to start with Gregory. But ladies first tonight. Um, the release of this picture by the Breitbart News uh, organization, uh, do you think it had anything to do with the anticipation of the State of the Union uh, um, or the news of Roger Stone or some of maybe the other things that came about with Trump? Or is it just the fact that it's been hidden for so long, long awaited that uh, people are coming out after Ralph Northam and needing to make a statement? What What do you think is the, the impetus of this uh recent release of this photo that uh, out of all of this time, no one's ever seen before. So thank you so much for having me tonight. What I think is really interesting about the timing is that Governor Northam also has been very vocal in regards to a women's reproductive bill that's been snaking its way um, in the Virginia House. The other thing that I want to point out, and I think we have to talk about um, as we talk about the Northam issue, is this same website just released information on the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, alleging that Justin Fairfax um, sexually assaulted um, someone at the DNC um, in Boston in 2004 to which um, he has repeatedly denied those allegations, and he's threatened um, legal action for those who, um, as he claims, are spreading um, these allegations. So I just think that timing and all of this is very interesting. Um, I, I think it also shows that political operatives who do opposition research as well as self-research, when you research all the good and bad things about your particular candidate, um, they have sucked to not even start and look at someone's yearbook. Um, right, when you exactly. That when Obama ran for office, everyone dug everything. They were trying to look for his kindergarten transcripts all the way through denying and claiming that he didn't actually attend Harvard Law School. So it's really interesting that the same level of scrutiny didn't happen to Northam as he went through the ranks of Virginia politics. He's been in politics for a long time. This definitely could have come up before. And then also, Governor Northam wants people to extend grace to him. But just because you extend grace doesn't mean that you don't face consequences. And even with this situation, if Governor Northam was sorry about his past or felt that he did things that are inappropriate, why hasn't he addressed it by now himself of his own volition? Why is he only addressing it because he was caught? And I think uh, many um, uh, residents of Virginia have issues with that, which is why you hear so many people on both sides of the aisle, um, you know, for, for different motivations, albeit, but they're calling for his resignation. And, and Ralph, go to that point, um, given that it hasn't come up in all the other times that he's been running for office and all the other things that's been going on, and as Rebecca said, which was something I was going to going to mention about the, the, the policy or the, the bill coming up on abortion rights and things of that nature, but even some of the comments that Trump has made the Virginia GOP is now saying, okay, well, he needs to resign. He needs to resign. But none of them ever spoke out against Trump at that time. What do you think the impetus of this is? And what's your opinion about its timing, where it's coming from, given that it's coming from Breitbart, but also just the idea of the, the timing of it and the the idea of a racial aspect, given all the things that Trump has said, looking back at Charlottesville, looking about it, the, you know, as whole countries and that nature. What 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 do you see as uh, something of of where uh, the GOP is 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 heading? Well, well, honestly, I have no idea, you know, what the impetus is for whoever it was that leaked all of this. Um, I, for one, have been telling people um, on the Republican side to shut up about Ralph Northam. Just be quiet. Uh, this is this has become a circular firing squad within the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have you know Ralph Northam out here, who 
whether or not he was in the blackface or whether or not he was in the Klan robe, he claims it was neither. He admits to being in blackface for a Michael Jackson dance contest, which he right. says he won. You know, and right. honestly, you know, I, I, I want to see him do a moonwalk in the rotunda at Richmond. I, I you know, personally, <laughs> I, I want to see that. <laughs> Well, that's what I said and, in my opening. I mean, you know, I, I don't know, but, you know, hey, I would certainly like to know if he has the real you know, kick and, you know, that Michael and, has. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and if he does the moonwalk in the in the rotunda in Richmond and he does a credible job, I mean, I think the guy should keep his job. You know, you know, you know I'm, I'm, I'm being funny here. <laughs> but, 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 but on a serious note, you know, then this thing with Justin Fairfax comes up, and th- this is where – the for me as a Republican sitting back looking at this, this is the hilarity of it. Justin Fairfax says that this story was leaked out by Northern's camp because those white bigots don't want a black man to be elevated to the office of governor in the state of Virginia. So here you have the lieutenant governor, a black man, saying that the Democrat Party is still the party of the Klan. And I'm sitting back, and honestly, I'm watching this. I have my popcorn. I have my soda. This, for me, as a Republican, no, I want Northam to stay in office throughout the end of his term because with him there, this takes the whole argument of who's a racist and who isn't a racist completely off the table because we have proof that Northam is a racist. But it doesn't. He took it, he it took doesn't. And to, and to look at what off of the, the but that's not what he said. Because his union backers told him to. He refused to shake E. W. Jackson's hand at a televised press conference. Those are two black men that he chose to publicly you know, dismiss like children. And then he admits that yeah, he thought it would be cute to wear blackface and be Michael Jackson. You can't. That, 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 but here's the funny. thing, Justin that's Fairfax. Funny. Justin Fairfax <laughs> is not saying that it is the Democratic establishment or the Democratic Party. He's talking about the racists. That yes, there are racists in the Democratic Party. There are also racists in the Republican Party. The differences between the two parties when it comes to race relations is at least Democrats acknowledge it. They don't ignore it. They don't tell black folks, oh, well, you ought to just work right. harder and pull yourself up off the bootstraps. That's the That's difference right. between the two parties. So I think it's very disingenuous to make well, see, it seem like racism is a damn Hold on, hold on, hold on, Ralph. Hold on, Ralph. Go ahead and finish, uh, uh, Rebecca. Uh, hey, Ralph, uh, hold on, Jason. Uh, hold on, hold on, Jason. Go ahead and finish, Rebecca. Yes. I'm finished to my point okay. at this moment. All right, go ahead, Jason. Jason, go ahead. Well, I would just point out that uh, I am sitting in Louisville, Kentucky, and about <laughs> two blocks from where I live, uh, Senator uh, Majority Senate Leader Mitch McConnell uh, has his residence. And in the midst of everything that has transpired over the course of this weekend, uh, Ralph, you might be aware that um, – uh, it, it has been revealed and, and folks have been reminded that Senate Majority Leader McConnell uh, posed uh, just a couple miles from where I live um, at, a, at Big Spring Country Club here in Louisville, Kentucky in front of a Confederate flag. And uh, as, as was noted, I, I do think that Democrats are holding accountable uh, the governor of Virginia for his acts. Uh, I would like to see Republicans hold uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, responsible for his acts as well at a similar date and time. Um, And he was bold in posing in front of that Confederate flag, and that is not forgotten uh, in middle America. So where do we go when we look at – I have friends. I I have friends, white friends. Who own Confederate flag? The Confederate flag for me is not a, a a a red flag like in front of a bull, because not everyone who has that um, that battle flag of Northern Virginia is a bigot. And see, and that's another false narrative that people keep saying. Oh, everyone who has this flag is a bigot. No, they're not. See, and and that's an, and that's another problem. 
But wouldn't you agree? But Ralph. But what is that? But Ralph, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Rebecca. Hold on, hold on, Rebecca. So let me ask the question of this, Ralph. Um, and and I can you know, I can agree with you that not everyone who has the flag is a bigot. But doesn't the symbolism of why that flag was raised and why what that flag means? for the purpose of the Civil War and the fact of the uh, 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 issue of slavery, doesn't it represent that? So when you embrace that, it's, it's, it's sort of saying that just because you don't say anything, that it's okay. But not saying anything is basically the implicit implied uh, agreement that you agree with it. So isn't having well, well, no. it just as much uh, as saying, well, you agree with what it symbolizes? So, I mean, if I have a Ku Klux Klan hood and a, and a uniform, don't I embrace what the Ku Klux Klan stand for? A Klan uniform is different than the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. And when you say that that flag identifies solely with slavery, that's a bit of a stretch. Because you could also make the statement that the, that the flag of the United States of America is also a flag of slavery because slaves also well, I, I would agree States. with that. Now, I would so, agree with that. So, now, my, my problem with that battle flag is that it is the battle flag of an army of a foreign country that sought to destroy the country that I love, the United States of America. Now, if you as a Southerner claim to love the United States of America as much as you say you do, why then are you embracing the flag of a foreign country that tried to destroy it? That's the problem so, I have with that flag. So then we can agree in that sense because... this also acknowledged 100 years ago, this also acknowledged 100 years ago that that flag became popularized again with the silent um, film Birth of a Nation, and it became yes. synonymous with white oppression. It became synonymous with night terror. It became um, synonymous with white superiority and black inferiority. So we can't cherry pick and pick and choose which elements of the symbol that we want to be cool with. And I want to reiterate, I do not call anyone friend. I do not call any white person a friend if they choose to carry, to keep, to display a Confederate flag. Uh, that's and, I, and that's a clear line I have in the sand. And I, I was raised also, in Nebraska, where I had white neighbors who tried to play around with that part of history and just like, oh, well, this is about heritage. No, thank and you. And I, and I also think that the fact that uh, Democrats at this point in time are are calling for Northam's uh, dismissal. And the fact that Republicans are hush-hush regarding McConnell's similar behavior at a similar point in time in our nation's history is very, no very telling. Yeah, what, what, how is there not or a Steve King. What, what about Steve King? King? Wearing a Ku Klux Klan hood and or blackface, there is no comparison to anything that McConnell has done. There is no way you can compare those two. Have you seen the picture, so, Ralph? So if we say if we say, so his refusal to vote President Obama isn't that the same as North um, refusing to shake um, that uh, um, black gentleman's hand? What's the difference by say, by trying to delegitimize the nation's first black president by saying I will not work with you, I will make you a one-term president. I'm going to make sure that even when you nominate someone to the Supreme Court, you don't get your constitutional rights. What is that? If that's not a rebuff, that includes a rebuff on the premise of white superiority and black inferiority. Oh, so you're assuming that that statement was made because Obama was black, not because he was a Democrat. Well, I would oh, we suggest know there's this. layers to it. We know there's intersections. No, 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 no. Inter- so we know there's an intersection. I would, I, would, I would suggest no, But you're this. assuming it wasn't. I don't have any proof. That it was. So, therefore, I'm not dealing in assumptions. I'm waiting for facts. You're dealing in assumptions because you're making a conclusion based upon evidence you don't have. Okay, so, so, so let, Ralph, me, he, let me let me so go Ralph, here, Jason. Let me go, let me go here, Jason. So, right, go ahead, if, if we look at where we are in today, what is going to be the, the basically the 
result of what we have. If Ralph decides uh, that he's going to stay in office, he's not going to to leave office. How do you see that impacting uh, these spring elections coming up here in the in the fall? I believe in Virginia, you have some delegate races that are coming up. I believe that the um, Democrats are like right there. It's like fifty fifty or forty nine fifty in the legislature um, looking to take over. And what's going to happen? How do you see that uh, uh, moving forward, um, Ralph? Um, if if Northam stays in office, which is my fondest wish, um, Virginia is going to go back to being red in a huge way because the Democrats are not going to be able to just throw out willy-nilly the claim of racism like Northam did in his current race and have it stick. Because the minute they try, we're going to go, oh, so-and-so's a racist, well, how about your boy? And the whole issue of race is going to be taken off the table, and we'll be able to talk about issues, things that are really important, and get away from this divisive politics based upon identity. So don't you think, uh, Rebecca, that if that's the case, as, as Ralph says, that Democrats can just do what the GOP has been doing with Donald Trump, and they can hunker down and support whoever they want to support, regardless of the race issue, and say, fine, since that's the that's the the the, uh, the the card that you're going to play. We're going to stick with ours because we're more, you know, in line of saying, you know what, regardless of what you're saying, we're going to stick to the party line just like you guys do. And we're going to support our guy, you know, whoever it may be, not necessarily Ralph Northam, but whoever it is that's running, we're going to support them. We're going to support Justin. We're going to support whoever it is. And we're just going to stick to the ticket line. They're going to continue to do, especially in this climate, they're going to call out racism as they see it. Because we understand when we have the type of person we have in the White House, when we have a lot of impressionable youth, when we see an uptick in racial tension and um, racial-based violence in this country, there's a moral imperative to speak out against it, to put humanity over party. And that's something that we're seeing Democrats are willing to do, and we're not seeing Republicans as an establishment as willing to do so as well. So my personal prediction is I don't think Northam survives this scandal. I think right now they're negotiating his exit. Um, And I think the Democratic Party in Virginia will still have the high ground because they haven't ceded it. Now, one thing that we see about the Republicans in Virginia, they've been willing to call this out. But people and voters still remember um, the silence around Charlottesville. We didn't see Republicans as an establishment in Virginia calling out what was happening at Charlottesville. So, no, this is not an impetus for the state to become super ruby red. That ain't happening. Jason, when you think about uh, just the history of Kentucky and Louisville uh, explicitly and looking at Virginia and its racist history as well, how do you think that the, the country is going to move? Because you have Kentucky, which is a, 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 a deep red state, but has some pockets of blue and, and shifting from in local, local areas, but uh, the state legislature is still pretty, uh, pretty red. And then you have a situation where in Virginia, the legislature is uh, part of it is red, part of it is blue, but you haven't quite, you know, it hasn't quite moved yet. It's still right there at that 49, 50 mark. Uh, How do you see the parallels and what do you think can happen uh, given this situation and looking back at McConnell and what he's doing? Because rumors have it that he may not seek reelection now. So I I would say the nation is paying attention and the way in which the Republican Party is handling this situation uh, and their recent and, and distant history is a factor. Uh, people are attuned to the fact that the reality of the situation is that Charlottesville is is not in distant memory, and uh, Democrats uh, across the board, including myself, are, are calling for a change in leadership in Virginia. And uh, the reach and scope of what is happening there um, is going far beyond the, the borders of of Virginia, and people are 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 paying careful attention and weighing that with previous Republican leadership behavior. 
And uh, in Kentucky, uh, folks are aware of what McConnell has done, as well as other Republican leaders. And uh, when, when Republican leadership in Virginia and other places comes out against Northam in this uh, situation and, and is, is strong against them, it, it's really, really difficult for people to stomach some of what we have seen McConnell and other Republican leaderships in our state and nationally, uh, including our president. Uh, do in recent days and years. Well, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to move to that and look at what our president has done. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and look and see what Donald Trump has done and how we deal with – no, no, I wasn't – and how we deal with it and what's going to happen (laughs) next. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you're not facing your mortgage issues, this can be the most terrifying sound in the world. It means you've fallen behind. It means hope is dwindling. It means you're another call closer to losing your home to foreclosure. Fortunately, there's hope. If you need real help and guidance, call 1-888-995-HOPE. That's 1-888-995-4673. Because nothing is worse than doing nothing. A public service announcement brought to you by NeighborWorks, the Ad Council, and this station. Mom, thanks for taking me to work. Gee, there are lots of people here who don't look like you. Asian people, African Americans, Latinos, everybody's different. Yes, and those differences are good because they mean different ways of seeing, thinking, and doing things. So how come where we live, everyone looks just like us? Diversity shouldn't be left behind at work each day. In our neighborhoods, we can prepare our children for the global life that lies ahead. To better understand the benefits of diversity in your community, log on to www.aricherlife.org. Brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance. You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now, back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. Ralph, let me uh, start off with you in uh, looking at the State of the Union coming up tomorrow and what we can anticipate the president saying, um, I, 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 oh, my God. Um, and looking at one of the biggest things that I, uh, I guess one of the, the, the first things that concerns me or just bothers me in, in the Senate and the GOP is that they voted to allow this Russian oligarch who has been identified to have interfered or been a part of the group of Russians interfering with our 2016 election to not only get his money back, his business and everything else. But they, I'm trying to understand what, what was the mindset of saying, okay, we're going to do this. Why would they be willing to do that? And what do you think is going to be one of the things that uh, Donald Trump is going to talk about in his state of the union address? Okay. Well, first things first, I'm, I, I am not a mind reader. Um, I have no, I, I was not privy to any internal thought processes, conversations, so I don't know what they were thinking when they decided to do that. And so that's the question that, honestly, um, I can't answer. I don't know what they were thinking. And I'm not but you know what I mean. I, I, you what you, you know what I mean by when I say what they think. It's, it's like, okay, if you are so American and you are so constitutional 
you know, you the Constitution tote book, you know, party, how can you allow something like this to happen and then vote to allow this man to get his money back and his business knowing that he interfered with your with the our United States our elections in our in our country? Well, I'm I want to answer the question this way. Um, me personally, I don't know that he did what they allege that he has done. Okay, I'm just gonna have to take you know the the word of our intelligence community and on whoever put the report out. So personally, I don't know. I'll take their word for it. What I will say though is this country, even before Donald Trump, has had a history of getting into bed with bad people. This is not something that started with Donald Trump. This is something that has been a a part of American history since forever. So to all of a sudden, you know, say, well, he did, the Trump administration did this, they're the worst administration ever, is a stretch because the American government has always gotten into bed with bad actors. Now, like I said, now whether or not he has done what they said he has done, I don't know. But that's the only answer that I, that I can give you based upon, you know, my own, my own integrity. Now, as far as what Donald Trump is going to say during the State of the Union tomorrow, I defy anybody on this planet to state with any certainty what he's going to say. Nobody knows <laughs> what that man is going to say before he opens his mouth but Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you credit, Ralph. I'm going to give you some credit because at least you're going to say, okay, I don't know and I can't answer. Now, your boy Gregory, he would have had a whole litany of stuff that he would have given us, and we would have been sitting there saying, Greg, what are you talking about? But we would have talked about it, and we would have made it. It would have been fine. <laughs> it would have been good. Right. I, would have, I, would have, I would have accepted it. I would have accepted it and gone with it. But I'm, And as, you know, it's, it's sort of like party politics and understanding the party because to me, Jason – it seems that, you know, looking at what could be said during the State of the Union, because, you know, you can identify he's probably going to say something about uh, immigration. He's probably going to say something about, you know, the, the economy where, you know, in, uh, agree or disagree, it's the only area that he can actually stick to and actually get some credit for. Um, and, and people can say, well, yeah, okay, on the stock side or on the, on the business side of things, yeah, my taxes are going down because I'm a corporation and I can keep all this money, but I'm surely hasn't, I haven't raised anyone's wages. I haven't done anything there. So you still have the folks that voted for him, especially out there in rural Kentucky and places like that, suffering from the economic side of things, uh, not only from the government shutdown, but from the fact that their wages haven't moved since he got into office, which he promised to do. So uh, I guess it's typical that uh, a leader would begin the State of a Union by saying the state of our union is strong. I have no reason to believe or think that our current president could stand up before the American public and the House of Representatives and say our state of the union is strong. He can try to uh, – Point people to uh, some falsified economic uh, good news. He can try to do this and that, but the reality of the situation is that our state of the union is weak. And uh, uh, if uh, he tries to stand up tomorrow and and uh, appease people by saying that we are doing well, I, I really think that the American public, including White Americans in Kentucky will say, uh, where are my coal jobs? Um, you promised me this. Where, where are the economic benefits for average Americans? Uh, I'm telling you, uh, it's not just a, 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 a black issue, but white Americans and middle America are beginning to wake up and say, there is something uh, foul about um, what we have been sold. That's an interesting term he uses, Rebecca. Foul. I haven't heard that in in a while because you know it's something that <laughs> I've used. I've used you know quite often myself when I when I've been discussing you know, things of of just utter disgust. But you look at it. Uh, Jason has a point when you look at the folks who supported Donald Trump, 
and who aren't getting the economic benefits that he promised them. And now he's talking about doing a middle class tax cut that he was, you know, sort of pumping up before the midterm elections to try to keep those voters in, in his corner, in his base. And they decided that they weren't going to go for it. They started voting Democrat. And looking at that from that economic standpoint of what he may say, not just from the economic front, but from the social front of, of what's happening. How do you see this uh, State of the Union coming off? Because right now they've already played it that it's going to be shorter, much shorter than his first one, and probably like, you know, 30, 35 minutes, because we know how difficult it is for him to stand there and keep talking about stuff that he actually has to read. So um, I think any other president would try to deliver an upbeat State of the Union, a strong um, type of message. Excuse me. But what I've noticed with this particular president, when he wants to appear very serious and studied, he takes on more of a gloom and doom demeanor and tone. And I expect to hear more of that. Um, Just like he um, talked about um, in his speech um, a couple weeks ago during the shutdown, he made up information um, such as that there's all sorts of women who are being tied up, gagged and bound and blindfolded and carried helplessly across the border and kind of brought to my mind like imagery from like Bird Box with Sandra Bullock. I think we're going to hear more of that tomorrow. Um, I think he's going to talk about all the drugs uh, that is crossing our country um, uh, through non-ports of entry, even though we see the El Chapo case um, going on um, in New York, and we're hearing countless and seeing countless pieces of um, evidence that seem to show that illegal drugs coming into the country is actually going through um, airports, land ports, and seaports. And because we don't spend enough money um, funding, um, uh, you know, funding, you know, personnel, you know, personnel's not able to catch the flow of illegal drugs. So I think we're going to hear gloom and doom. And then uh, from the media, from the Democratic Party, we're going to see um, a lot of um, fact-checking. But what I'm really curious to watch is to see the message that Stacey Abrams is going to bring in the official Democratic response. I have yes. no idea what tone. I don't know if she's going to be upbeat. I don't know if she's going to be confrontational. But for me, tomorrow night, that's the speech to watch. So, uh, Ralph, let me let me go to you because last year the uh, Congress uh, passed uh, a budget, Homeland Security budget, that had – $1.6 billion in it for border security. There was also a bill passed prior to that that gave the 25, I think some $25 billion to uh, border security. And the majority of that money hasn't been spent. And then I hear today that, you know, uh, part of there's going to be some construction going on down at the border, uh, construction um, uh, uh materials and, and, you know, excavators and things of that nature are going to be showing up at the border tomorrow or, or in, in the Rio Grande tomorrow on federal land and, and starting to, to construct this wall uh, that's going out there. Why hasn't the, the administration already spent the money that they already have uh, for border security and for the portions of reinforcing the existing barriers that are already there and use the money that for new barriers are there. Why are they having this fight on this $5.7 billion that clearly is not enough to do anything uh, for a wall when you already have the, the money that you need to do what you have to do? Why are they having this fight? Isn't this just pure political? Well, simply because $25 billion was appropriated in, in a previous administration in a previous year doesn't mean that money is still there. You know, no, there, it's the same administration. Uh, this was under there, the there, Trump there, administration. Little, so we're going, no, there, was, there was money that was earmarked going back before even Obama. So I'm not attacking Obama and I'm not attacking Democrats. But I'm saying, but there was money that was appropriated for this years ago. The question is, where is that money? What happened to it? It was probably reappropriated to something else and it was never used for its intended purpose. Now, I don't think anyone can argue that we need to, we need to enhance our border security with an enhanced border barrier. 
I, I went on record three years, two years ago saying if anybody really thinks that we're going to erect a 10-foot concrete wall six feet deep all the way across the southern border of the United States, they're absolutely crazy. That, that, that's, in my mind, I knew that so, was not a realistic statement. The use of the term so they, wall so, was basically just a shortcut version of saying exactly. we are going to increase the border barrier, whether it's fencing, whether it's a wall, whatever. But, and we need to do this because did we not just have the largest fentanyl bust at our southern border just a week ago? Yeah, but it was at a port yes, of entry. But it's at right. a port of entry. But, it wasn't like in the middle of the but, desert, but which also, Trump is trying to talk about. But, but also, the, the 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 border barrier is should be or is rather just one part of a larger equation. We also need to crack down on people who overstay their visas. You know, people who come in which, with tourist which visas, which is the purpose, visas. which which right. is we the majority to, of the people coming in, that. as and well we as the majority of people coming in from the north. But the majority of the people right. are coming in from the north, and you don't have people just like willy nilly crossing the um, uh, the desert coming across at non interest of fortune. Now you have a few, yes, you do have those folks coming in, but the majority of folks are coming through in a car, not a souped up charger going across the desert because their cars are better than and bigger than the, the troop uh, the border patrols, but they're coming in through the port of entries. And my point is. We understand that. So the technology that they're talking about, the tunnels that they're digging, all the different things that are going on is going to secure our borders better than some concrete wall, like you said. Now, what I need to do is I need to have you come on here with Gregory so you can explain to Gregory this wall thing, because (laughs) clearly Gregory is sold out on building this concrete wall six feet down, six feet around, and everything else. No, but he understands that we're not going to build a concrete wall. No, he doesn't either. No, because yes, if does. you listen to my show two weeks ago, Greg was straight up, we need a wall. Okay. <laughs> you need to listen to the show two weeks ago. Honestly, but I, well, let me say that because Greg is a friend of mine. We know I know. Very, I, he's a friend of mine, well. too. Greg's a friend of mine, and, too. I love you know, Greg. That's why I talk to him. And, you know, and well, you know, I'm going to bring you guys on together so you can have it again. Yeah. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, he knows that Go ahead, Jason. We're not going to build a concrete wall all the way across the southern border. That, that's let let that's let me let me jump in, uh, Ron, Rebecca, Go ahead, Jason. Michelle, and just say, uh, let me tell you how white folks work. Is it, <laughs> this, <laughs> this wall? <laughs> that, that, that's the statement from the very beginning is racist. <laughs> this, this wall is a joke. This wall is a joke. Because the reality of the situation is that um, the economic impoverishment that is taking place in Latin and South America, uh, across the Caribbean, and uh, Africa, it is all a product of the same system that produced slavery in America, and that is uh, capitalism um, that that generated great wealth for a lot of white folks in the United States. And um, the reality is that uh, the the, the truth of the matter is that uh, it's all about the money. It is all about the money. And this wall will not stop folks who are impoverished south of our border from coming across uh, our southern border uh, whatsoever, because our global economic system is set up so that white folks in the United States and Western Europe control the economic levers. And as long as that is the case, you can build walls six feet deep, 12 feet high, it doesn't matter. People will find a way to circumnavigate what is going on. And that has been the reality of our country today. Uh, and over the course of the last many centuries, um, and uh, white folks have benefited from that greatly. And 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 speaking of that, uh, Rebecca, because you know we've had Jason on before talking about white privilege and and what it means and how it has impacted this country from public policy to social issues to just economic, plain economic nuts and bolts. You know the the nitty gritty. 
when you think about the idea that Trump promised a 3% GDP, or actually he promised a 4 or 5% GDP every quarter and all this great stuff and the stock market was going to be so great for us, stock market has pretty much balanced out. It's, it's you know, pretty much even uh, over the last year or so and a half. Uh, GDP is at about 2%. It's not going, it's gone up, you know, one quarter here at three, another quarter at two, where have you. When you think about that and then look at what uh, uh, Jason is talking about from the perspective of the browning of this nation, but white America wanted to keep the economic power, uh, I'm anticipating that his State of the Union is going to be talking about, like Jason said, he's going to say, oh, the, uh, our nation is strong and I've done these great things because I've created these tax cuts, but those tax cuts have gone to the riches of the rich, which is the top, you know, eight per top six percent of this nation that are, are corporate you know i, I want to i don't i guess i call them oligarchs you know corporate oligarchs who are basically just pocketing it, the change because they're not raising money they're not raising wages on make, any of their employees oh yeah the tax uh legislation is the primary way in which white people consolidate wealth be it yeah. uh yeah. Yeah. gift tax <laughs> yeah be it yeah. uh income tax I mean, that is the primary way in which powerful white people manipulate the governmental system for their benefit. And uh, we are seeing it on on, on raw display. Right, and and hitting that – Leading up to the union. And hitting that, Rebecca, the, the, the biggest thing I've always noticed with what Jason just said and, and, and added to is that the inheritance tax they've always wanted to eliminate. They've always wanted to eliminate that because that's – pretty much what Jason is in is that that particular uh, uh, lever is one where they can just keep passing down and passing down goo gods wealth. Generational wealth. Generational wealth. Yep. Go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a segment of um, people in our, in our country. I'm thinking about that um, book. It was called um, Hillbilly um, Effigy. Or Hillbilly. Effigy. Um, yes. And in that book, it really talked about different attitudes and beliefs. I think there's a segment in our country, they just want the idea that they, too, can get that American dream and become a millionaire, that they will fight to the death to defend actual millionaires' tax breaks. And it doesn't make sense because when we talk about, you know, voting in your best interest or or voting for your self-interest, there is a portion in our country that simply isn't doing that. So Mm -hmm. I still think with the State of the Union, I think um, it's going to have a negative doom and gloom cone. I think the president's going to posit it as, well, we need strong border security. We need this wall, but Democrats are getting in the way. We have a sharp uptick and quote-unquote illegals um, committing crimes in this country, and Democrats want to increase those illegals, I think he's going to speak in those terms because his base responds to that. And Trump has doubled down and proven he only cares about his base. You know, with, I, don't, I, I, don't, people, I don't even know that he cares about his base. I think he cares more about himself and what he wants and what his family wants, I think he's using the base as his leverage point. I don't even think he cares about them um, because he, he flip-flops like, like like Ralph said. He doesn't, you know, it, it just depends on who talks to him last and what he gets. And, and with the release of his schedule uh, today, I think with uh, everyone realizing that he does absolutely nothing while he's in the White House, uh, except for the three meetings he has once a week, uh, uh, the three minutes he has a week. It's like I, I do think he cares about what his base thinks because if you think about it, he's actually one of the only politicians that we've seen in modern day history who's actually kept every promise that he made to his base. Now, many people in mainstream America they didn't believe him. They thought he was just, um, you know, joking or using hyperbole. But every single thing that he said. And those um, crazy rallies in 2016 of what his priorities are, he's actually been following those priorities. This is true. Go ahead, Ralph. I'm a little confused here because in this, what I just heard um, you say is he's kept his promise to his base, 
But a few minutes ago, I heard you say that he hasn't kept his promise to his base. He turned his back on his base. He, you know, he sold him out. So which one is That's it? That's not what I said. Has, has he That's kept his promise? No, no, no. Or has he not? I, That's I, not I was, what I, I was said. saying. I was saying which one that, is it? Ralph, That's not what I, I was said. Saying, so if you're going to quote I was me, saying, quote me. <laughs> I was saying that what he has done has hurt his base in the terms of being able to produce economic wealth for them, that he has not done that. That's what I said. Now, in terms of what he said he was going to do, (laughs) he said he's going to make the tax cut. He said he was going to do these things. He did them, but it did not materialize for those southern uh, or uh, uh, mid-westerns, those uh, suburban, those, you know, rural white folks that voted for him and supported him. They have not felt the economic push that he said he was going to give them is what I was saying. I said that. Uh, he has not gotten but, but also, you, 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 <laughs> And what I'm saying is, a, he, he cannot turn an ocean on a dime. Soap. It takes time for the policies to produce the positive results. And I would argue that he is laying the foundation, even with the tariffs, to produce all of the results that he has promised his people. But you do not turn a cruise ship on a dime. But in the meantime, but in it is, it is. But in the meantime, Ralph. Okay, but but in the meantime, right? But in the meantime, for America, but he is the very promises he made to his base. I do see those as his priorities in this White House. Now, do I think those promises are bad for this country? Absolutely. Do I think in the long run those policies? are problematic for his base? Absolutely. But what I will say about him is that he is keeping his promises to his base. I will give him that. I just think his promises are terrible. And I'll, and I'll add this before I... Before the I, automobile uh, tariffs, before we they turned out good for America. We are selling rice to China. Come on. We, we are now a net exporter but Ralph, of but Ralph, fuel. Ralph. You have all the Midwest, Iowa especially, suffering from those tariffs. They are suffering from those tariffs. So let me ask you this. Hold up. Hold I got 90 seconds, guys. I got 90 seconds, guys. I got 90 seconds. What's at stake for us, Ralph? And I need you to do that in 20 seconds. What's at stake? What's at stake with regards to what? What's at stake for African Americans? What's at stake for this country? What's at stake for us? Given the given what we know, what's at stake for us? What's at stake for us, honestly, is this president is putting policies in place that are going to continue to help the U.S. economy grow and develop. We haven't seen all the results that we want to see, but I believe that he is laying the foundation so that every every economic promise that he has made to every aspect of his constituency, his base, and urban America in particular is going to be fulfilled. All right, I don't see urban America, but go ahead, Jason. What's at stake for us? Uh, I, I would say what's at stake for Black America is everything. The reality is that um, what uh, our president is doing at the moment is he is trying to manipulate folks against one another, and uh, you know the truth of the matter is um, if. Uh, the black community and the white community doesn't wake up to the reality of the situation. He's going to win. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's a serious situation. As we 20 seconds, Rebecca, in, what's at stake? What's at stake, Rebecca? So what's at stake? There's so much long-term damage that's being done to government. And I think it's going to disproportionately impact African-Americans in part Uh, Many African-Americans work in the federal government because of the job protections, and 20% of the federal workforce Mm -hmm. is, I believe, African-American. So the more he plays around with government and does lasting damage to government, it's going to impact the black middle class, which one path to the black middle class was through uh, federal government service. I want to thank my guest tonight. I want to thank Jason Crosby, Ralph Chittam, and uh, Rebecca Carruthers for joining us tonight and discussing and talking about what's at stake for this country, for African Americans, and for us as a whole. Because I realize that everything that's going on in this country isn't going to benefit everybody, but everything that goes on this country should. And everybody that's leading this country isn't out for everybody. So until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, 
is Black Politics Today. I want to thank you for joining us tonight and see you next week as we again talk about what's at stake for global politics. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today.